Clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm, welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 42nd in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Wellington Management CEO Gene Hines. With that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom, and good afternoon to friends of Rockefeller Capital Management, our clients, our colleagues, and welcome, as Tom said, to the 42nd in the client series that we established way back in March of 2020. It's my great pleasure today to have Gene Hines with me live in my conference room here in New York. Gene? Great to be here, Greg. Great to have you. Uh, Gene is uh, the CEO of the legendary Wellington Management Company, uh, and we have uh, a wonderful set of things to talk about uh, throughout the next hour. I want to start with some highlights on Gene's background and biography, uh, all worth hearing. So uh, Gene is, as I said, the CEO of Wellington Management, one of the world's largest independent investment management firms with over 1.4 trillion in assets under management as of uh, the end of last year, 2021. Gene oversees nearly 3,000 employees in 16 offices across North America, Europe, and Asia. Gene is also a portfolio manager on Wellington's healthcare team, which manages more than $70 billion, including the U.S. $51.6 billion Vanguard Healthcare Fund. That's that number again as of the end of last year. One of the world's largest dedicated healthcare funds, which she's managed since 2013. Throughout the past 30 years of her career, she has researched the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries. And Jean is one of those rare individuals, and many of you have heard me talk about this, uh, like our uh, very own Jeff Shames uh, in uh, uh, his MFS days, uh, who is both a great investor and a great manager and leader. And having both of those skill sets is uh, something that uh, very few individuals have over the course of uh, history in the asset management industry. Jean is also one of five female CEOs among the top 20 asset management firms and the recipient of many industry awards, including Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in Finance, 2020 and 2021. I would guess there'll be a few more of those along the way, Jean. 100 Women in Finance is North American Industry Leadership Award, 2021. The Hedge Fund Journal's 50 Leading Women in Hedge Funds, 2018. I, uh, I highlight that because of uh, uh, the, um, the fact that uh, Jean is a, is a woman, uh, both investor and CEO of Wellington Management, is something that is uh, uh, the exception rather than the rule throughout history, hopefully changing going forward. Jean joined Wellington Management after graduating from Wellesley College, where she earned a BA in economics. She's a CFA charter holder, member of the CFA Institute. Uh, she's a member of the Investment Committee at Wellesley College, giving back to her school. Notre Dame's Wall Street Leadership Committee, Jack Brennan, if you're listening, I'm sure you had something to do with that. Uh, business Council and serves on the board of directors for the Massachusetts Competitive Partnership. Uh, Gene, it's been a fantastic career, uh, path-breaking in so many ways, and uh, it's uh, there's a lot ahead. So thank you again for being here today. Thank you, Greg. You know, with that bio, uh, the first question I have, um, uh, not surprisingly, is a little bit about your life story. Um, can you talk about your background and uh, you, know, you got into this industry, uh, have stayed with this firm? And you're now the first uh, woman CEO of uh, of the legendary Wellington Management Company. So just talk about that whole journey. Yeah. So um, thank you. Uh, I joined Wellington 31 years ago on Friday. So wow. um, right from um, right from right from Wellesley College. And I, I do think it's important to go back and um, sort of explain my background. I'm the I'm the daughter of um, Irish immigrants. My father was a bricklayer. My mother raised six children. And I will say, I think we owe a lot to both of them, but they were very focused on education. So education was where their all their disposable income went. Um, and the first three of the six were daughters. And I think that actually did play a lot in um, the fact that, you know, they were very focused on um, sending us to college. I think, I think, you know, they, they are really proud of us and all of my six siblings have done well um, out of college. And I think uh, we exceeded their ambitions um, by a wide margin. Um, and so I always think about how do I pay that back to other to other generations of people that um, that also could have that benefit. Um, I went to Wellesley College on almost a full scholarship. I, I will say my parents um, 
did did pay, I think at the time it was like $3,000 a year, which was a large part of our disposable income as a family. And they said, Wellesley will open doors for you, which clearly it has opened doors for me. Um, and I did you know, just that yeah. my life was the same. Yeah. I went to Colgate and yeah. I had a scholarship for most of it. Yeah. And my father contributed approximately my parents yeah. a couple thousand dollars a yeah. year, which they could do. Yeah. Teachers. Yes. It's a great story. Yeah, it's a great, it is a great story. And I know it was a, a real sacrifice at the time. Um, and I didn't know anything about stocks. So nothing about stocks. You know, we, we, were, we are a family that really, um, that investing in the stock market was not um, part of our life. And so I, I began to um, realize that in 1987 when I started at Wellesley, when the stock market crashed, and that was my first introduction that there was a stock market. Um, and then in 20, um, in, in my junior year, I had to do a, I did, there was, Wellesley had one of the most famous classes, which was a sociology class where you had to work. And I just ended up finding a job at a brokerage firm in Boston, and that was my introduction to the market. And I sort of, I, I wasn't interested in the brokerage part of it, but I fell for the research part of it. And I, and I could verbalize as I was leaving college, um, I want to learn about why stocks go up and down. Um, and then I found my way to Wellington. Back, back in 1991, it was not a time of a plethora of jobs. It was, you know, right after the um, um, Iraqi-Kuwaiti war. And so there were not that many job openings. Um, I did find my way to Wellington and I took a job as an administrative assistant. So my first job at Wellington was being an administrative assistant, always in the research department. I worked for three analysts and, um, and, and I was still doing model. I started, they, I knew I was going to be doing some research assistant work as well. And about 18 months in, I got to work with Ed Owens. So Ed is the legendary, we call him the godfather of healthcare, the legendary healthcare investor. And I will tell you, I'll tell you a funny story is, um, he is, I'm like on the nine or 10 on the extrovert scale, and he is like one or two on the introvert scale. Um, Which and is more traditional for investors. It's right? more traditional for investors. And he had, um, and he was at a point where he was really in his mid 40s, expanding his portfolio management responsibilities. He had been running Vanguard Healthcare for about um, not quite a decade. And he, it was $500 million at the time when I started working with Ed. So it's it's obviously risen quite quite a bit. Um, and he um, he wasn't writing. He was the analyst and he wasn't writing. And so they wanted someone, they were gonna hire someone to work with him and he, he was, he didn't, um, you know, he wanted, he, his idea was, well, I know Gene can write. I, I wrote the morning meeting notes once a week. I know Gene can write. And that's how I got, you know, I did such a good job on the morning meeting notes that that's how I got recognized at Wellington. That's fantastic. And Ed asked if I could work with him. And I, I said that he was such an introvert. He had walked by my desk for 18 months and had never said hello. So <laughs> I was a little nervous about going to work with him. That sounds like an <laughs> Um And, and. And it was it was like a it was like a it was a great match from day one. So from day one, I started working with him. I went to every biotech company meeting, every pharma meeting. I helped him launch some product research portfolios at Wellington. Um, and I still was his administrative assistant. If he was here, he would say, "I open mail faster." Remember back in those days, there were big piles of mail. I open mail faster than anyone else because I was so interested in the work. So that those are my er, that those are my very very early days at Wellington and, and maybe just spend two minutes on sort of the next three decades. So I'd like to think about decades. I'd like to think about my career in decades. So the first decade was really learning to become a researcher. I, I think it takes a long time to, to really gain that skill of how do you gain insights into companies? Um, because without insights, you're not going to be able to create alpha or be able to invest in stock. So I think about that decade as really honing in those research skills and learning under the best, um, learning under the best. And the, in the second decade of my career was really learning about um, portfolio management. So from around 1999 to 2000, I, I was managing our re research portfolio sleeves. I was running a biotech long only portfolio, a biotech long short portfolio, um, a biopharma um, um, sleeve of, a, of the Hartford Fund. And we launched a team-based long-short fund in 2007. So it was really becoming a risk taker um, in learning portfolio construction and how to put all those insights into, into those skills. And, th and then the third, my third decade, I would say, is about portfolio management and being a leader. 
I think that my leadership journey really started. I did go to London. I moved my family to London at the beginning of you talked about Wellington. We have 16 offices and we didn't have an investment presence outside of Boston or Philadelphia really um, before before 2007. So I was one of the first people who went to London to begin to um, build our, our London based investment presence. And how, how long were you there? I was there for one year. And we can Your talk. Family went. Your family went. My whole family went. I have four children. Yeah. My whole family went. Um, you know, it's interesting. If I wonder, I wonder because they wanted people to go and it was so unusual back then. Expats weren't typical back in 2007, not for asset management firms. Yeah. Um, maybe for the big banks, they were more typical, but particularly investors, particularly for investors, or distribution if you're going to go there. Exactly, yeah. or leaders of a business. Yeah. And so um, they said you only have to go for a year. And I, I often wonder would I have gone if they said you had to go for two or three years. Now, in the end, I would have loved to stay longer than that one year. It was probably the best thing I ever did for myself and for my family. But your children loved it. My children loved yeah. it. Um, and that began the leadership journey. That's when I, being separated from Ed, I tell you, you know, being like Ed and I were a team and then becoming more, becoming independent. And ha um, I think it was a really, and I've seen it now more and more from people that do expat assignments. It's just such an amazing growth opportunity. Um, and then, and then I became team, team leader in 2013 when Ed retired, um, began the managed Vanguard Healthcare. Um, in 2014, I became a managing partner. So Wellington is a private partnership. We have three managing partners that are responsible for the governance of the partnership. Um, I really felt in 2014, I had the best of all worlds. I had, you know, my strategies, long short, long only. It was managing, you know, this flagship Vanguard Healthcare Fund. I was the team leader. I had the managed partner responsibilities, which I I was missing. Being a leader, being a leader of people, I felt was missing. So I thought this is this would be the this is how I would end my career, and I would retire. One of three managing partners. One of three yeah. managing partners, and I thought that I have everything I ever wanted, and I didn't really have the ambition to be CEO. I didn't really think I was. I didn't really think that it was in my DNA to be a CEO. And I'll tell you, it just spending so much time with the with Brendan Swords, who was the previous CEO, being so, like working so closely with him, I I oh, it was kind of this slow process to say, you know, I can do this. Like I have the skill set. I think there's a lot of a lot of my skills overlap with being how I'm an investor and how I also, um, I think uh, as a leader and CEO, and um, and then and then it was like, did I want to do it and. Was it possible to do with all my other responsibilities? Well, it sounds like yeah. So that's that's my thirty-one years. It's an incredible thirty-one years, and it's ongoing. Um, you know, one of the things about Wellington, and it sounds like this was the case with you and Brendan, uh, that there are certain firms, public and private, that do transition transitions well, yeah. leadership transitions well. You know, the, a public firm that I've always said I think does a really good job with transitions is T. Rowe Price, yeah. and you'll know those people, yeah. and we've both I've, known yeah. many of those CEOs yeah. over the years. Um, and Wellington does too. They take it very seriously. They realize how important it is. So I, I think in, in working with Brendan, uh, you know, he and I'm sure, you know, uh, was, was focused on you, you coming next and yeah. making sure that you had that kind of apprenticeship. And because, you know, Wellington basically doesn't miss on the transitions. You do a really good job from, oh. you know, one. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not worried about this one. I'm talking about looking back. Yeah, no, you know, as we yeah. discussed, I, I've known Wellington since Duncan McFarland and Perry Trina. Yeah. Right. You know, there's and, and they and they do a fantastic job of this. So um, uh, I think that working with Brendan is probably good on all yes. directions. Yes. Um, so uh, I like to kind of the 31 years. Uh, uh, you know, so much has happened. When you started, the firm had how many employees, and what were the assets under management relative to 3,000 and a trillion four today? So they were just. I think I was about 275 employees when I started at Wellington, and about 60 billion in assets. Right. And we were very U.S. value, very, very U.S. value investing focused. Yeah, um, but you know, unbelievable yeah. Yeah. growth. And and as a private company with the you know with the transitions working as well as they have, um, so it, you know, if we if we go back to Brendan uh, on this this theme of uh, good transitions, uh, he was focused, I guess, more on broadening internationally, maybe broadening and in investing outside of Boston and Philly. Um, but you know you're you're closer to that. What were his priorities, and what are yours now? There's yeah. going to be, you know, at some point, uh, many years from now, there will be 
Jane Hines really focused on these three, four, five things. Yeah. What were his? Let's start with his because you were working hand in glove with him. Yes. Yeah. So let me maybe go back maybe to the, to the CEOs that I worked with. So yeah. I had the privilege of working with all of the CEOs at Wellington. And when I think about all of them and let's take them in each about a deck, you know, a little less than a decade. Um, you know, Bob Dorn was a CEO when I, he was 10 years into being a CEO. And so when I think about Bob Dorn, I think he set the culture of the firm. He set the culture of the firm. He set what the mission of the firm was. He, he had ambitions about the, the quality of the firm that he wanted, you know, way before. And that's how he acted. That's how he decorated the office. That's how he worked with relationships. Um, and then Duncan became the CEO in the mid 1990s. I would say Duncan was our was the like really grew our firm from a, a small base to a larger base. And when you think about, as I said, we started with U.S. value. The decade of the 90s was about expanding into other parts of equity, growth, small cap, mid cap. Perry, you mentioned Perry. Perry took over as CEO in 2004, and under him, it was a really large investment in fixed income. We had fixed income, but it was dwarfed by our equity business. And now in 2022, it's very balanced. We're very unusual in that we're so balanced between equity and fixed income. And he began our globalization. He began the globalization of the firm from a um, from an investment platform perspective. We're now about 30% of our employees, clients, investors are in either Asia or Amy yeah. or Europe, which is um, it's amazing you know, just as constant investment over those that period of time. So I would say yes, I, but now if I focus on Brendan, I think a couple of things about Brendan. Brendan continued that focus on globalization. Um, I think Brendan did a number of other things from an organizational point of view in the sense that, you know, we were in, let's say, let's say 2015, just after he took over, we, and I, and I followed so many companies. I've like probably been in 10,000 company meetings and I know over my 30 years. and. And, and my observation about that is that companies go through organizational changes, very healthy for companies, but usually it happens under duress or it happens when you do a big merger. And neither one of those was part of Wellington's story. And so I think Brendan modernized us. So Brendan modernized, like, what, what should we look like as an operating company? What should we look like as an, what is the investment platform of the 20th, 20, the 2020s um, going to look like? What, how, are we, how are we positioned to serve our clients and deliver investment excellence? How should our alternatives, like what should we be doing in alternatives? So he, those were, that was a series of work that took place over Brendan's tenure as CEO. And I think that sets us up now. So I would say a, cu a couple of things that I'm focused on. One is just sort of, I think in the last year asking, like, why are we doing things? Like, what well, you know, how are we doing things? I'm, I'm, how do we like what, what what's our main goal our main goal is to really deliver investment excellence how do we do that from a process like i'm one of my skill sets is process so thinking strategically the yeah <laughs> and process exactly and so um, one of the things that um has been i've been focused on and that we are just launching is a is a it's a program or a, a a part of wellington that will be focused on investor development and that was just an observation that you know, why should investors not continually get better over time? How, why, why, why should they not have coaches just like um, elite people around the world and, and almost every industry, um, every industry does? And so we studied that for about six to eight months. And one of the observations is that it's not really happening across the investment industry. It's happening in spots and some hedge funds. Um, and so that is a program. Now we have a leader. We are launching that. And so if you ask me, if we come back and do this five or six years from now, like how, how has that made a difference? And I really do hope it will help early career investors. It will help teach people how to generate insights. It will help teach people how to take a risk. It will help, you know, people that have been investing for 30 years learn new tricks, like how to adopt technology, how to incorporate ESG, how to incorporate risk. The markets are just so much more complex than they were, you know this, than they were 10 years ago and 20 years ago. So that's something I'm very focused on. Um, and then from a business perspective, um, this has this started under Brendan, and I would say it's in the acceleration curve. We are investing as a firm um, more than we have probably at any point in our history, and that would be focused on a few areas. One would be 
um, sustainability. So um, sustain it like sustainability across the board. How do we incorporate sustainability and um, into our investment process? The other would be an investment in private. So we've been in the private business since 2014 as a business. We've been investing in privates earlier than that. So we can talk more about that if that's of interest to you. And both are because both of those things I'm taking yeah. up with both yeah. sustainability, uh, particularly in our, our own yeah. asset management business and investing in privates. Across our family office, our private wealth teams are uh, putting their, their clients in a significant allocation of privates and, and alternatives just because for high net worth and ultra net worth, that makes a lot of sense. The, yes. You know, they, they can handle the illiquidity yeah. and they get access to firms like Wellington yeah. on that private basis. Yeah. So those are both uh, central topics around yes. here. And then maybe the maybe the two final ones that we're making investments in is we've been a long short manager since the early 1990s and and we are um, I would say may, bringing that business from good to great is the hope for that we have a leader that that um, you know and we should be a great firm for for attracting all kinds of talent whether it's long short private talent um, and we have a, a, an ecosystem now of 600 investors that have all kind all all the capabilities in the market so how do we continue to um, add to that ecosystem that that really does then bring the whole dialogue about you know what what's what we think the world will look like, and then maybe the final thing is technology. So technology, I think in five years from now, so yes, I think technology, everything technology, and and how does the tech how does technology impact and um, the investment process, or how we how we interact with our clients, um, and. You know, we're on the very early stages of embedding technology into the business. Um, so those are the big areas of investment. Those are great yeah. areas. And, and, you know, I have to say, listening to the, the history, the names, uh, I, I, I didn't really know Doran, but I, I, I knew Duncan well. And you can see why Wellington's Wellington today, yeah. the great leaders, the specific areas they're focusing on, the, you know, the, the broadening and the, and the internationalization of the, of the firm. Um, some of the things you're focused on, uh, you know, it's amazing that the industry has done more like for investors development, Yeah. you know, the, the different training and because it is a very challenging business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of people I think are just set up to, to, to kind of go do it. Yeah. And it's such a, a challenging job. And Wellington could truly differentiate itself by taking the elite people you're able to hire and making them better and better. I mean, it's a great thing. I think one of the things that we are we do well it, it, that has not been focused on investor development, but focused on leadership development. We started a program in 2013 called Leadership Excellence, and now a number of our leaders, hundreds of our leaders, have gone through that program. And and what's it? The two things that I will say from that is people come to us and say, "You changed my life." Not only are they better leaders, and they they have better and broader impact at Wellington and for our clients, but they feel like they've learned lessons about themselves. Um, and I think it has helped us um, with diversity because those programs have been very balanced on diversity. And I think it has increased the confidence of a number of our women, for example, I'll take women that went into that program early and they are now the leaders. They're, they're becoming the leaders of the firm. And so, it just it's just another reinforcement that all of us can learn, all of us can get better. I mean, I feel like I'm still growing constantly, and programs like that that are very deliberate, I do think help you. Einstein yeah. uh, said that um, uh, growth should uh, cease when you leave the world, yeah. and not until then. And I, I, I subscribe to that, and we do here as well. Let's pursue uh, women in, in, in the yeah. investment career because it has been. So there have been so few women uh, uh, in the investment industry, you know, for such a long time here, and that's starting to change. Although I do have to tell you, as you know, uh, uh, Jennifer Berg, I remember yeah, from when yeah. I'm in my Merrill days, uh, Wellington was probably ahead of the yeah. curve on that too. Jennifer, you, and there yeah. are probably, you know, many more. Um, but what advice do you do you give women about an investment career? And um, do you see it on a, tr on a path? You've heard me talk about Avery Sheffield here yeah. running this long short fund band drive, which we're we're so pleased with, and she's tremendous. Is it are we on a path where this industry is going to end up, you know, where I think it obviously should be, where it's more balanced, or even could be, yeah. you know, a higher percentage of women than men in, in this business? So yeah. you're you're thinking on that? Well, you know, one of my passions and and goals before, you know, for for I mean, I think it's well. First of all, let me say I think it's a fantastic industry. Like I have learned so much and. 
have had such a fulfilling life being an investor and the ability to learn every single day. And so it should be a great um, field for everyone, right? Yeah. All of humanity. Um, and if we focus specifically on on females, and you and you, you can do this, you can do the same with people um, of um, Black heritage or Latinx. You know, the industry is still heavily, heavily, heavily represented um, by males and white males. And I think we are making progress, and it's still maybe a generation to make to make a lot of change. Um, I, I think when you mentioned Jennifer Berg, I think the first change that happened in the industry was research. So. Um, women enter the research field. So I do think we've made a lot of progress, and I know that's true at Wellington in our research and um, those who do um, industry research, for example. Um, I think we, what we're trying to do now is become even more deliberate to how do we make sure that um, those investors, whether they're on teams or whether in their research, have the opportunity to be team leaders, um, run, um, run money, you know, a few years ago, I think four or five years ago, I was running more money than I was running like 20% of all the assets run by women in the world. I mean, that's right. it's like that. That's a statistic that is crazy. Like it should actually it should be um, it should be much more diversified. Now, I think yeah, we have even though you're yeah, running a lot of money, yeah, it should still have a decimal point. Yes. To the left. Yes. Uh, so that, that we need to make a lot more progress in terms of um, women actually running money. So that's one of my passions. It's one of the things that I do spend time at Wellington, mentoring women that are on that verge of becoming portfolio managers. Um, so that that is a, a, a goal of mine. Um, I think you just you just we just have to get more people attracted to the industry. We have to move. They're being very deliberate about mentoring those from becoming researchers to those to become portfolio managers. Um, we have if you look at the long only there's more progress and there there's more progress in um, research than and then after that it's probably equity portfolio managers and after that it's fixed income and after that it's long short which is like five percent of all assets are run by women and you as you know private equity there's tremendous work that needs to be done so how do we you know across the whole spectrum how do we continue to attract um you know diverse people and one of the things that I strongly believe, and I think the data is, I don't think the data is irrefutable now, is that diverse teams create more innovation and they have more insights. And I think there's so much data to prove that. Um, Credit Suisse is a firm that's looked at like every company in the world and they've done these time series of, of um, measuring companies and the number of people in management and on boards and, and more diverse companies actually consistently have better results. And I remember the first time they came in and I was really grilling them on their methodology. So there's more data like that that didn't exist 10 years ago. And when you think about our industry, you know, we're trying to predict the world, you know, what's going to happen in the world in 2025 or 2030, that should be a formula where you want the most diverse perspectives. And so there's a, there's a strong argument for diversity across all industries and even potentially more in this industry. hundred uh, percent. I haven't looked at that data, but you know, my philosophy here, and we, we practice it at Rockefeller has always been, you get the best and the brightest from every conceivable yeah. background. And, and this diverse eclectic approach creates results that you couldn't get otherwise yeah. if people are coming from always a very similar perspective. I think Wellington is so lucky to have you leading it with that philosophy. And Avery did send a question in, which is a follow-up, and she pushes the envelope a little okay. bit in the follow-up, uh, in a fair way, so you'll, you'll, uh, you'll appreciate it. Um, but that's what she does you know, for a living as well, because uh, she's in long short. Um, so she says, given you're one of the few female leaders in the industry, can you comment on why you think there aren't more female portfolio managers and CEOs in the industry? You, you, you kind of hit that. Yeah. But she goes on to say, what, if anything, do you think that women bring to the table that can make them particularly well-suited for this role, even yeah. maybe more than men? Well, I don't want to go. I don't. I don't want to go. I, I, I don't want to go there. But I do think um, women. This is a. This is a fantastic profession for women, because it is so. It is so objective, right? It's really, really objective, um, and that's what I always say when I when I'm out talking to groups of, and trying to encourage people to come in the industry. It's such an objective, non-subjective industry. Um, and I think that is very positive for diversity of all kinds. Um, I, I, I think the reason there aren't more is that there are just not role models, right? 
um, I was lucky. I was lucky enough to get that internship that sort of my interest in the field and found my way to Wellington. But when I went to Wellington, there were very few investors that were female. And I just happened to get very lucky with the people I work with, especially Ed, who was a fantastic mentor. But I, so I do think we have, I, th I think the more role models, I, I really do believe this, the more role models there are, the more people will see, well, I can, that's an interesting job that I see Avery doing and I see Jen Bird doing, I see Jean doing, I think that makes that, that's interesting to me. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. I mean, I think that's true, whatever we're talking yeah. about across yeah. uh, life, but certainly, yeah. you know, here as well. Um, you know, Jean, back on, on your career because uh, of, of where you are now, how is it balancing the, the investing with the leadership given the staccato nature of, of Franklin Post? Yes. But I mean, certainly the investing is at you yeah. every day. And, uh, you know, how, how have you had to transition that a little bit? Because as, as hard as you work, it's 24 hours in a day. So, uh, you know, I made the first big um, adjustment in 2014 when I became a managing partner. And so the managing partner is a role that is responsible for the governance of the partnership. Naming partners, naming, you know, nominating partners, naming managing directors, splitting the profits of the firm. So what's interesting about that role, and I'm going to, I'm going to say how it's different from being CEO, is that it's almost like an investment job, right? So my job as managing partner, in order to be a really good managing partner, and, and for the partners to trust that I was doing, you know, and I was going to be fair in all those decision making, um, you needed to do a lot of work. You needed to understand the firm. Um, that was a great, that was a great experience for me and it becoming a CEO, but it was also a responsibility to understand who's having impact and what parts of the firm are having impact and to study Wellington. And in, in some ways that job is very much like being an investor. So I'll give you an observation about 2014 to 2021. I could go from an MP meeting to a healthcare meeting, to sitting down, looking at a model, to reading a research report, all, I could interchange them all day long. Um, and I would say the biggest difference between being a CEO is that um, it's it's not this it's not this just absorbing and reading. It's it's a much more dynamic day to day and week to week and um, month to month. And so I have I've had to adjust multiple times in this first couple of years to say, um, how do I balance? And I think I think being a great investor, you need you need that energy to be there to really absorb information. So I have I have more, I have a lot more calendar management, like times when I'm just focused on healthcare. And I'm um, a low turnover, a long term investor. So it's really about making sure I spend that time, which I do, studying. Um, but not the hour here and there. It's more more set times where I'm spending significant amount of time. So that's that's what I would say. The energy is different yeah. between the two the two roles. And do you find that the fact that you've got the two roles uh, is it, it it makes the days even more stimulating? I mean, you like yeah. both roles. They're both great. They're both so, great, yeah. and they're, it's fun. And the days are full. Turn off one for a little yeah. bit and, and be yeah. successful over here, yeah. and then go back to it. Uh, yeah, not obviously with being an investor, I have all these. Um, mechanisms because sometimes, and it doesn't happen every day, you need to take advantage of liquidity. I tend to be a liquidity provider. And so I have all this support that people are like, Gene, you need to look at this. Um, and so then I can always feel free to walk out of a meeting and, and you know, knowing that Vanguard Healthcare shareholders are number one. Yeah. Let's go with the, uh, the healthcare and all the work you've done in biotechnology and uh, over the years, yeah. uh, because you are one of the, you know, foremost investors there. Uh, how has that changed? That, you and I talked a little bit about this. That world is changing at a, at a you know, yeah. uh, logarithmic rate in so many ways. Medicine is just yeah. careening forward. So how has your job changed there? And, you know, what, what are some of the major things that are uh, evolving in healthcare that, that, uh, that you see? Yeah, so it is the most exciting time to be a healthcare investor. And I, I would say the reason I say that is there's two. There's, I think there's two two mega trends. One is, you know, the unraveling of biology. So we are, you know, 20 years into uh, understanding the human genome. And, and Greg, I'll tell you, nothing really happened for the first 10 because there was no machines, right? The machines weren't there. The technology wasn't there at the price. And it's really only been 
in the last five, four or five years that the price of doing um, genomic testing of, you know, of even a target has come down to a price where the industry can really do deep, 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 deep experimentation. So I think we are so early in unraveling biology, and I think we're going to look back and 20 or 30 years, and there's just going to be a, you know, this big shift in the standard of care of human life because we're going to understand, you know, what causes, you know, this pathway of cancer and we're going to have treatments. So, so that would be number one. I would say the other part of the biopharmaceutical industry is that if you kind of go back and look at it over 50 years, you had small molecule, like small pills for the first 40 or 50 years, aspirin. And they and and that and those those that um, chemistry went after small targets, either receptors in the body. If you go back to your bio high school biology, either receptors or enzymes. And then it wasn't until like some of my big my the reason I started to do well, I recognized that these protein therapies, monoclonal antibodies, and protein therapies were going to change that standard of care of certain diseases. And that those, those were introduced in the late 1990s and that went after large receptors in the body, like large biology. So that opened up a whole new way of treating diseases. Um, now, if we look at 2022, we have that and monoclonal antibodies now make up probably half of all development in the industry. And we also have much better oral drugs because we know the biology better. So they're more specific and less side effects. We have something called SI interference going after um, um, the DNA and RNA um, part, parts of that, that system. You have mRNA, everyone knows now about mRNA with, vaccines, yep. with the vaccines. That's going to transform vaccinology. Um, and you, you have gene therapy that's been de-risked. You have gene, everyone's probably heard of CRISPR and gene editing. Now that has not been de-risked yet, but if that is de-risked, and what I mean is, is it safe? We, I don't think we know enough yet about the safety and the efficacy and how it's delivered, but that could be a breakthrough. We have going after bi-specific antibodies, going after two targets at once. And so like, just think about all of those ways to go after the biology. And um, and when you think about the, the value of the industry, those technologies are inherently more, um, less, you, a lower ability to have generics against them. So you'll just have a much more stable industry. Well, you know, when, when you, as I listen to you, when you, yeah. when you piece it all together, one of the things I say to my children who are in their 20s is that uh, among the many reasons I think that generation has so much in front of it and it's going to be such yeah. a fortunate generation is because of the progress in healthcare. Yeah. But listening to you, it really will occur that, yeah. you know, we're going to really get far ahead of cancer over the yeah. upcoming decades. You know, I, I know people that are being treated with immunotherapy which has done, it's been miraculous yeah. for extending life yeah. and extending it in a certain way. So that's really all coming in. in, in, in uh, and I think the wealth said. market and the biotech market are very connected, right? People will need their money to last a lot longer. Yeah. Because they're going to live a lot longer. Yeah. Because they're going to live a lot longer. Yeah. Economists had a piece on if you get ahead of cancer and, and cardiovascular comes yeah. down because of better diets and, you know, if everybody's living in 110, how does that change the world? It was an interesting piece. Yes. But I mean, that literally, yeah. so that's going to come to pass. Yes. Now, another thing on this theme that that, uh, that I know you're pleased about is the impact that Wellington and you as an investor can have on the general good of society by helping invest, whether it's private or public, in these uh, you know corporations that that are doing well in the healthcare space that are pushing you know the things we're talking about here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it makes yeah. you proud of the job you've done. Yeah. So, so you know the mission. One of the things we did at Wellington when I became CEO was link mission as well as to our purpose. And our purpose as a firm is to drive better out, drive investment excellence for the beneficiaries of all our clients. So in you know really connecting beneficiaries to our clients. The the other the uh, to our outcomes. The other the other thing which I think which is another thing I talk about at, at within Wellington all the time is you know we are we also have the unique ability to allocate capital to companies and allocate capital in a way that is going to shift the world and, and provide better outcomes. Now that's happening now in climate, right? If we talk about sustainability, that has happened historically. You know, one of the companies that we were a private investor in is Moderna. So that's like a very tangible, you know, tangible, tangible 
um, life changing. So, no, I'm when I think about back over my 30 years, have I, have I allocated capital in a way that one is generated alpha and generated returns for our investors and also allocated capital to companies that have really made big difference? That's very aligned with how I invest and my philosophy. And I go back now and you know, there are categories like the whole um, TNF category that's transformed um, our root arthritis and psoriasis. You know, that that was that's now a $40 billion category. Like we were very early investors in those companies. So that's yeah, I'm really proud of that. And it's like amazing to see when you when you start investing in something and then it, it comes to the market and it begins to penetrate patients and and then they stay alive, right? Like that's just um, it's one of the, the, the funnest parts of the job. I can see it. I mean, that's fantastic. Frankly, we, we have an analog here because I've been uh, you know, we all like to, to, to be part of a, a career where you feel like you're doing well in the world, meaning for others. So we provide a lot of advice through our Rockefeller Global Family Office to individuals uh, who have worked hard to, to create wealth and they want to pass it along. And, you know, you're doing a good thing in society as you provide that advice in a high quality way. And, you know, it's why I'm proud of what we do at Rockefeller. And I, I completely understand and identify with the investment uh, that comes through Wellington and with a trillion four, yeah. even with a lot of it in fixed income, yeah. uh, it's, uh, you know, it's impactful. So um, one of the things you mentioned earlier in, in some of your strategic priorities are, are privates, which is, you know, the firm's been investing, but you said you want to go from good to great on, on that, uh, in the whole private space. So Chloe Duanchi, who um, is head of our investment strategies here in Rockefeller Global Family Office, sent a question in saying, you mentioned in a recent interview, you like to see Wellington's uh, private assets grow. Yep. Um, Chloe says, uh, you know, we're seeing tremendous inflows into private credit, private real estate, uh, and, and frankly, into all more generally. And it's a key part for our private wealth advisors of the uh, investment uh, recommendations they make to our clients. So how, you know, where is Wellington in that today and how is it likely to evolve going forward? And yeah. Uh, you know, as it becomes a bigger part of the company, which I think is a very yes. great. So I would say the comment about good to great, meaning the all that's more the long, liquid long short okay. all its business, making that just very I good. I when I said that, you were like, I'm going to clarify what you're saying. Clarify. Like, I didn't mean to create an Actually, our, No, 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 no. Our, our private's results, uh, which we now have two, have been great. So uh, yes. <laughs> the only, the only hesitate, the only, uh, the only modification there. So what, we, by the end of this year, we'll have four um, private equity um, strategies. Um, late stage growth, um, biotech, climate technology, and, and investing in diverse founders. That's the beginning of an equity, private equity. And, we, and you could see us over time expanding that into hybrids. We should be very well positioned in sector hybrids, for example, because we have such a strong sector-based research. And as I said, that's a separate group now, the private equity. So there's really a private equity group within Wellington. There is a private equity group in, within Wellington. But for, as an example, you could see us in a few years have um, on the same team um, people that focus on um, privates with all, with, all the, with all the safe proofs of that, um, people focused on longshore and people focused on long. Um, and in there is a lot of collaboration, you know, open collaboration on the platform. So it's 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 not a separate business that's totally separated from Wellington, but it is a separate business in that we're thinking about it holistically and strategically about how to build the private's business within um, the Wellington ecosystem. Um, we have ambitions, and we are we're we are our next our next um, endeavor will be private credit. Um, and you know when you when you Go back to those that fixed income. We were very strong, very strong footprint and um, credit on the long only side, um, and we um, and then also real estate equity. Um, pub, we have public um, very strong um, capabilities and structured um, debt, and so all of those. Like, where do we have adjacencies? You know, we we don't have to we don't have to be we, we don't have any ambitions about being one or two. It's just like how can we offer our clients. Um, content that is really adjacent to our current um, current capabilities, but add something to how, what they're trying to achieve for their end, for end beneficiaries. And so 
I think that we will consistently and maybe five years from now or 10 years from now before I retire, you will have an equity business, a credit business and a real estate private business. Well, and one of the things you mentioned on the private equity side, just to uh, extend this a little yeah. bit, uh, was investing in diverse uh, uh, management teams. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that uh, as, a, as a healthcare investor, you meet a lot of CEOs, including Ken Frazier, you yeah. spend time with. Yeah. Uh, and you've discussed diversity in the company's workforce as a major competitive advantage, which would be the thesis behind that fund, yes, right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about your, your thoughts on this? Uh, uh, why? And, and we, we, you touched on it yeah. before, but we'll just come back to it again. Yeah. Diversity is such a source of strength within a, within a company, yes. uh, including for the shareholders. Yes. So one of the, uh, one of the, you know, when I, when I became CEO, when it was announced I was becoming CEO, I had it just had so many of my, um, healthcare management teams that I have worked with for so long just sat down with me and shared their leadership lessons and and it was very interesting because I would I would know what their record like what they did over their tenure or what you know so just like so tell me why that was important and um, it was great to like know the companies and actually ask them what was the most two or three most important things that mattered do you think of being a CEO and I do remember Ken um, when I was talking to him he you know he just you know, at the end sort of implored me and said, you know, Gene, we are, you know, we need to make a difference in diversity. We need to have humanity represented in our companies and you can make a difference. Like he was just imploring me. And I, and I, what I, my observation, I thought that was such a constructive way to think about diversity. Um, Cause it's not about quotas. It's not about, um, you know, it's, 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 about, it's about being very inclusive and that this is such a fantastic industry. How do we have humanity, have the ability and the opportunity to participate in this industry? And I, and I think for Wellington, we're doing it in many different ways. Like, we, you know, we should be the, we should be a, a place where people, where diversity excels. Um, and, and I think we are, we are that firm. And how do we continually make progress at bringing early career so if you look at our early career program, that is very diverse. That represents humanity. So if we us too, seventy five percent of our summer interns yeah. are diverse this year. Represents humanity. So if we can continue to do that, we will uh, build the pipeline of, of investors, and we're going to be very deliberate there. We should be able to attract talent. So we, when we talked about our the, our diverse investing in diverse founders on the private side, we we hired four black investors across the country. Now, I will have to say, in order to do that, we had to think outside of our Boston box, right? Like we had to, you know, in order to get great and the best investors to 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 to, to do this, we had to think about the whole United States. Um, and that's something that we that put us out of our comfort that put us in our you know, out of our comfort zone of how we used to recruit and um, have talent all in really a few offices around the world. So so this is part of, uh, on a broader basis, um, Wellington in 2022, under your leadership, you're pushing it in directions that it, it, it really hasn't historically gone as a, uh, you know, as a private uh, firm, from my vantage point, over so many years, just doing well at what they were supposed to, but being happy being below the radar screen. You know, they're, they're, you know, a lot of people in Wellington were comfortable with people didn't really know what, what Wellington proud, was. Proud, proud. You know, what, what Wellington, not really, I mean, in contrast yeah. to, you know, public firms or even Fidelity, yeah. everybody. So you're changing that because you think it's the right thing for the organization. Can you talk a little bit about the, the coming out of Wellington in 2022? Yeah. And I, I would say it's it's a process that we've, that's been in place for a couple of years, but it's probably become more evident in the last year or so. Um, I think in our, it's exactly what you said. It's 2022. It's not 1991. It's not 2000. And and I I think two two parts of our it matters for two parts of our business. One is and very importantly, it's talent. Um, so when we were a Boston-based firm and and all of our all of our everyone we were recruiting for in Boston, Boston's Wellington is very well known in Boston. <laughs> um, we didn't need to be public. Um, we didn't need to have a, a brand or a profile. But as you go to London, I remember in London, no one knew who we were when we started hiring portfolio managers. That took a couple of years. And, it, and, and then the same thing happened with Asia. Like So that, so having, um, having this podcast, I, I can tell you that 
you know, there'll be people who will listen to this before they decide whether to come to Wellington or not. And H, there's something on this podcast that I will say that says, I want to go and work for that company. Um, so I, and then people have told me that, like numbers of people, people have actually emailed me and now they're working at Wellington. I listened to that. Can I, can I, you know, do you have any positions open? And so I think from a talent agenda and we are a talent business, I do think we, we, that being so insular about ourselves wasn't, wasn't, wasn't going to serve us um, for, you know, the, the times. Uh, and then, and then I would say, secondly, one of the things that we have been investing in is our wealth business. So our wealth business broadly, and, and in the last 10 years, really building a wealth business um, to working with clients, um, building a funds business that, that interacts with um, private banks, for example, or firms like yourself in, in Europe and in Asia. And, they're asking for us to have a brand. So, you know, we, if we want to help them, then um, that's one of the things that I think does help them. I think it was a great answer, I have to say, because the same thing happens to me, and that's part of, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, incredibly successful people like yourself come on this program for our clients to listen to what's going on in the industry here. But it's also, so people hear the same thing, that uh, Rockefeller Capital Management seems like a terrific yeah. place to work, yeah. the culture and the way they sound. So it's, it's, I, I think it's incredibly smart uh, of you to do that. Um, a couple of things as we start to run out of time, I told you we could have been on for hours. Um, uh, biggest surprises in your career now as you start to look back, or maybe you're, you want to wait and do that, you know, at the end of all of this, but anything uh, over the last three decades that is uh, that stands out when you think about that? Yeah, I think the biggest surprise that I'm sitting here today as CEO, <laughs> as I said, I had no ambition and... Yeah, but I don't, after yeah. talking to you yeah. for 52 minutes, yeah. no surprise here. So that, that, the, that I would be here, so I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to be CEO and like I, my whole goal would be to give back to Wellington. I, I think the big, the big surprise would be like even going to London, like that was not something that, that I ever thought I would do, and I and I would encourage anyone who has the opportunity to get out of your comfort zone. I think that helped me get out of my comfort zone. I, I'm, I, I told you about my Irish immigrant parents, and I'm from a, a gigantic family in Boston. And you know, my I'm like my life was sort of set. Like this is what you did, and actually going to London was a brave thing to do. I think I think it has made my daughters um, much more independent and adventurous. So. Those are probably surprises as how much I grew um, by by doing that. That's great. Uh, it does, uh, I wanted to ask about that. I mean, your mother, four, four daughters. Four daughters. Um, you know, I, and this has been a, a challenge for, for me as well and for all of us who kind of lived these careers where the, there's a lot in them. Uh, how, what, how have you balanced that, yeah. those, those lies, which is not easy. And what advice do you give to somebody who's trying to, and actually, ironically, Avery's got four children too, okay. and, yeah. and recently said to me, you know, I've got all these stocks I'm watching and four kids and yeah. you know, my husband and my family, and that's basically the bandwidth. Yeah. And, Avery will know you have a lot of stakeholders. <laughs> you gotta manage, you gotta manage your stakeholders. I, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, you know, one of my, um, this is when I have a, a daughter and then I had twins that were kind of so surprised and then another daughter. And so, I was like, it all happened all at once in a short period of time. And, um, but I remember, so it was like chaotic, right? That those early years, very chaotic. But I remember my twins being in the back of my car during Lent and we're Catholic and um, they, you know, we kind of encouraged them to give up magic markers. Anyone with young, any parents with young kids knows you just hate the magic marker stage when they get them all over themselves every day. And so they gave up magic markers for Lent. For Lent, yeah, it was. That was very true. And so we had we were having this conversation about, well, you need to give up something you love. And then the two of them in the back seat of the car said, well, you need to give up work. Um, and and we had a, you know quite a, a laugh about that. But I actually do think I tell that story because I think my daughters knew that I loved my job, and so that made um, that made it you know I, so. I think that was very, very healthy. I loved my job. And so then it was really about how do I um, manage everything else around me? How do I have great help? How do I have nannies that love my children, that I love, I trust? How do I, how do I have my, uh, you know, how do my husband and I make sure we go away once or twice a year by ourselves to reconnect? And, 
And so we did all of that. And we have, you know, this whole uh, village that helped. And I just, you know, I just didn't do things, um, elaborate things when they were all young. We didn't do anything elaborate. Um, probably going to London was the first time we really explored outside. I didn't do anything that took away from the weekends. Like I was on on the weekends. Um, so they um, they knew I loved my job. I spent a lot of quality time with them. We had dinner every night. Like we really, that was one of the things I learned from some of my, um, some of the women at Wellington. That was one of the tricks. I'm not a trick, but it was one of the things that worked for one one of the one of the families. And I remember after becoming a managing partner, about a year after, I was just checking in with a girl that's like, I think everything's going well. And they're like, No, you're not at dinner enough. Um, and so they kept me accountable too. And so that was like that still is an important thing for our our unit of six, even though they have, you know, significant others and friends. It's like going out. That dinner time is still important to us. That's great, uh, and it's great that you had a. Uh... You know, a senior uh, uh, woman at yeah. uh, Wellington saying that. Yes. Because it's one of, I, I do, we push hard here, but I'm constantly saying to everybody, whatever you need to do to feel balanced and stimulated yeah. outside of yeah. your job, please do it. Yeah. Because, it, you know, it makes for happy and productive yeah. people here. You know, I, I know you know Duncan, who was the CEO when I had my first child, and he came into my office. I was just back from maternity leave, and, and you'd have to know Duncan to know this, but he came in, he's like, Welcome back. And <laughs> then he's like, Gene, you're only 24-7 in your head. And um, like to me, that meant I, there was no FaceTime. And that's what his message to me is like you're 24-7 because that's a job of an investor. And um, and I did leave work for a decade. I probably left work at 4:30 and obviously was in very early and did stuff at night if I needed to. So just always, I think every time, every every five years, everything changes, and you need to adapt your schedule. It's kind of like being CEO; I had to adapt. Yeah, that's a progressive uh, statement from him, yeah. and uh, and a progressive organization. Yeah. And and I like that you're twenty four seven in your head because I, I I really, you know, we're asking for that kind of dedication here. Yeah. But it's in your head. You're yeah. driving. You, you yeah. should make sure you get out and do all the yeah. things that work. Yeah. Uh, um, so um, uh, a question that came in on. Um, what do you do to relax at the end of the day, given particularly now? Yes. We have the stress of the investment side. Yeah. And then you've got the stress of running the firm and, uh, and you know, a path-breaking role model in the middle. So uh, some of the things I like to do, and this is not necessarily every night, but I do, um, as I said, I'm a very organized person. I do like to, I do find exercising and listening to music, listening to podcasts is um, very relaxing. And so just getting out and I, and I, if I don't do things five times a week, I, I make sure I don't end a Saturday without doing things five times a week. So just being very deliberate about making sure um, that I'm exercising and that could be in all forms, swimming and long walks or paddle boarding or um, in the winter skiing, I learned to become a skier. I was not a skier, but you know, my girls love it. And so, I've become a, a, a I've become a much better skier in the last couple of years. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and do you take family ski trips with the six of you? Uh, um, yes, we. I actually joined my. Well, I, we we had this thing called year end that didn't allow me to go skiing with them, but I went away with them for the first time this this January. But we have we we ski in Vermont. That's great. Yeah, every um, weekend. Well, uh, uh, last question, uh, just to end uh, on uh, back on. The markets are going forward, yeah. and the your facility with everything between investing and leading and is is fantastic. So it's been a tremendous hour. Um, biggest headwinds and tailwinds you think we'll see over the next ten or twenty years in the in markets? In the markets, well, I, I one of the things I'd like to talk about our business model because you know in the end I've been a student of business models. So when I think about the asset management and what Wellington does and what's the business model, you know we are. You know, our, our industry does correlate highly with economic growth. So economic growth, productivity, innovation. And if those happen, then the markets tend to go up over time, right? Over long, long periods of time. Like that's a fantastic business to be in. It is. It's fantastic business to be in. Um, so, but the, the potential headwinds for that, it's just been a very strong 14, 15 years, you know, since since 09, it's been a very strong 13 years um 
we now have had this correction and, and the question is, will we be in a period for I'm, I'm not going to predict how long this will last, but will we be in a period where, where we all have to adjust to inflation and interest rates? You know, there's no CEO in the whole world that's had to deal with inflation, except if they've done a, a stint in Latin America. Yeah, you just yeah no, so no one, like how how this- um, Even whole, in their career, even at junior levels, yeah, inflation was yeah, flat when yeah. most CEOs were starting their careers. And interest rates, the same thing. So I think we'll have an adjustment period about how to, how companies and its CEOs around the world and their and leaders uh, deal with inflation and will be in this digestive period of figuring that out. So that's a that's a that's a um, headwind to the to the business. I think over the long term, though, there's so much innovation, and of, of course, deglobalization would also be another one. But the the innovation happening around the world, and I know when I talk, we talked about digital, we talked about technology. Um, you know, I think one of the big things from COVID will be this this whole world is, you know, when I talk to CEOs in all different industries, everyone has this massive digital agenda. And so I think it's too it's too early to predict how that will change productivity and change innovation. And that's always where, you know, that will always overpower, you know, the headwinds. I think you're hundred percent right. And I talk about that all the time. I think step functions from here. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I can say, no matter what happens, is that Wellington's in good hands. Oh, thank you. Hey, thank you so much for being thank here. You, uh, and as the listeners know, uh, uh, I always end with quotations. Uh, but first, thanking uh, our uh, clients and colleagues and friends of Rockefeller for listening today. It's been a real treat. Uh, Gene Hines, uh, one of the leaders uh, in this industry and uh, across corporate America in 2022. Uh, so I picked a few quotes uh, for uh, uh, Gene or uh, appropriate for uh, the interview with Gene. Uh, so I have three, if you uh, bear with me. Uh, the first is Ayn Rand, uh, author of, among other things, uh, one of my favorite books, The Fountainhead, who said, quote, the question isn't who's going to let me, it's who's going to stop me. And then uh, Billie Jean King said, after beating Bobby Riggs, quote, you have to see it to be it, which you said basically in this interview. And then Amelia Earhart, uh, I think this is a tremendous quote. Uh, um, she said, I quote, the most difficult decision is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. You can do anything you decide to do. The fears are paper tigers. You can act to change and control your life. And the procedure of the process is its own reward. So Gene, thank you for again for being here. You fit uh, right down the middle of, of that and, and more. Uh, and thanks again to all our listeners. Uh, stay well, stay cool, all the best. Thanks very much.